Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. I have this memory from my early 20s. It was a beautiful summer weekend. It's Friday afternoon. And I've got plans to go climbing and my partner bails. And I remember sitting at home being kind of grumpy about it all. And I was like, I want to go climbing. So at 7 o'clock... I get in the car and I drive out to Index, which is my favorite crag. It's like an hour outside of Seattle. And I decide I'm going to go aid solo this route, this multi-pitch route. And if you're a climber, you know that aid climbing can be a tedious process. It's super gear reliant. It's slow. It's not like taking a quick little run or a jaunt before sunset. It wasn't necessarily reckless or dangerous, but it was, if you look back on it, a little weird. Right, like Out of all the things a 21-year-old on a Friday night in Seattle could be doing, going and thrashing up this climb, it's like maybe a little too enthusiastic. And more important, maybe like when I look back, it seems a little bit lonely to me. So anyway, I climb, and I'm maybe like two pitches up when it gets dark, and I pull out the headlamp, I keep climbing, and then the headlamp batteries die. And there I am halfway up a cliff in darkness, and I can't really see the gear I'm placing. The crack is so small, it's super nuanced. So I'm like putting this gear in, but I can't really see what I'm doing. And I'm trying to feel it with my fingers to make sure it's placed correctly in the crack. And as I'm testing it, one of the pieces fails, which isn't a big deal, but it flies out, it smacks me in the face. I'm totally fine, but I'm spooked. And it was like someone just all of a sudden pulled the plug out of the bathtub and all the confidence, all that like early 20s confidence and enthusiasm, it just floods out of me. And I'm there dangling, gear softly like chiming on the harness, like the soft summer breeze. And I'm sitting there alone wondering, why am I like this? 
wondering what my friends are doing in Seattle, wondering what I'm doing with my life. Is this what happiness looks like? All these questions, they like, they come pouring in super rapid. And I was just like scared, even though I wasn't really in danger and I knew it. And I really didn't want to be there anymore. All of a sudden I see beams of flashlights up above me. It seemed like they're searching the top of the cliff. It's all weird. And it's something's like kind of off. And I'm worried that there are high school kids up there partying and they're going to start throwing beer bottles off or rocks. And I start yelling. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm down here. But they can't hear that. And the lights keep dancing above me. And I remember I just, I kind of, I kind of broke down and I just started crying a little bit and I stopped yelling and I sort of slumped onto the row and slowly, because it was like a little bit overhanging, I just sort of slowly spun outward. So instead of facing the cliff, I started facing the valley and I looked up, those weren't flashlights. There aren't kids partying. It's the Northern Lights. And they're faint, but they're beautiful. Kind of feels like I'm at the bottom of a pool looking up at the light refracting through the water. And it's super powerful. I can see to myself that maybe I was a little too stoked and that maybe I had to put a little more of myself out there if I wanted to be a part of the climbing community. That maybe I had a lot of room to grow. But I also kind of realized like, oh, I, I do know what I'm doing with my life because this is awesome. And I watched the lights dance for 20 minutes and then an almost full moon rose and it was bright enough to now see almost perfectly even without the headlamp. And I finished the next pitch and I rappelled down and eventually crawled into the back of the truck right about when the birds started singing. So for me, even though it's a pretty tight memory, you know, it only lasted like eight hours or six hours or something like that, but that memory colors solo travel and adventure for me. Since then, I've traveled alone for like months at a time. I've wandered through mountains alone. And though I'd rather go with a friend, there is a certain wonderful flavor to solo adventure because it isn't shared or communal. The drama, if there is anything, it unfolds internally. It's all in your head. There's something fascinating about that. It's scary to some people. It's restorative to others. It's simple. It's complicated. Embarking on a goal, a trip, a personal journey without a partner even if you interact with others along the way, it provides you with a view of yourself. The success or failure, joy or loneliness, you are the sole author of those emotions. And while I admit it's possible, it's pretty hard to BS yourself. You define the parameters, you define the terms of success, and that's a pretty rare thing in life. Today, producer Cordelia Zares brings you two stories about solo adventure its joys, its complexities, a winter bike ride near Mount Everest, and a journey through Alaska. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I tried the Girl Scout thing, but like, I went on one trip, and they took away my pocket knife. <laughs> and they made a fake fire inside, and I was like, this is BS, I'm done with this. Amy Begg tried to convince her parents to let her join the Boy Scouts team. But they told her, no, you're a girl. I was really mad that I couldn't be a Boy Scout <laughs> because they just had way more fun. Like they got to go camping and carry pocket knives and do all this fun stuff. She stuck to sports where she could run as fast as possible down the field without it mattering if she was a boy or a girl. By the time she reached high school, Amy had a knack for catching every ball as a goalie. Everyone expected her to join the varsity soccer team, but Amy had other plans in mind. 
I want to play football. I like football. It's fun. And if I do it past my freshman year, the boys are going to start growing. (laughs) And so at least my freshman year, like they're all still for the most part around the same size as me. And I'm like, I'll have a shot. Her parents and grandparents shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, you do you. So she got a helmet, some pads and cleats, and headed out onto the turf. I was the first girl in Connecticut to play football. And I, you know, like, I wasn't the reason I was doing it. I wanted to play football. From the very first day, the coaches accepted me. And I, I think because I was athletic and good. Like, I remember our first day and we were doing drills doing different things to run and catch the ball and stuff, and I was the only person that caught it every single time. Amy's talent for sports, and her irreverence for gender norms, continued to develop through high school and college. She started skydiving and joined a few nationally competitive teams. And she discovered paddling, which, just like every other sport she'd set her mind to before, she got good, fast. A friend invited her to join his kayaking team down the Rio Marignon in Peru, and Amy accepted the challenge. She'd be the only woman kayaking, and the first woman to paddle that section of the river. Often, Amy led, paddling the rapids before anyone else. There was this one rapid that I remember that it was really hard to scout. There was, like, no place to really see it. We're super high up, and I'm just looking, and I see the river go down, and it just takes this, like, hard right turn, and we couldn't see what was past that hard right turn. And so we were like, well... (laughs) I guess we're going to find out. (laughs) So I went first and I was like, well, I hope I see you at the bottom. Pick me up if you uh, see me like swimming somewhere. A few years later, Amy did another first female descent, this time down the Blue Nile River in Ethiopia. The Nile crocodiles for real. When they say the Nile crocodile is aggressive, they're so right. (laughs) They are scary. It's an element of a fear factor that I think I've learned how to control and how to keep at bay. Through her 20s, most of the adventures Amy went on were with all guys. It gave her confidence in herself, in her abilities and her strength, and it fueled her passion to be in the outdoors. She loved kayaking, but she loved being a beginner too. So in 2018, she began dreaming of a different kind of trip. Last summer, I started getting into cycling again. Uh, It's always been part of my life, like in and out of it. You know, I'd cycle for a while and then not, and then cycle and then not. And I went up to my summer cottage back in Connecticut for a couple of weeks and I brought my road bike and I started cycling, which that's like one of my favorite places to cycle. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. I really love this. <laughs> I was like, this is great. I was like, I should do a cycling trip. Amy had always had a fascination with Mount Everest, but she didn't want to climb it. That had become too mainstream. Maybe I could cycle Everest. I was like, I wonder if that's possible. <laughs> She started doing some research and found the Friendship Highway, a fairly new road that runs from Shigaste to Everest Base Camp at 16,500 feet. She could bike a 400-kilometer route to Shigaste in four days. I found out that the dry season in the winter is like when Everest is clear. You could see the peak, it's gorgeous, and a lot of times in the summer, though much warmer, oftentimes you can't see the peak. And I was like... Well, that's crazy. If I'm going to go to Everest, I want to see Everest. Like, why would I go and risk not seeing Everest? So I was like, well, then I'm going to go in the winter then. Totally rational, right? (laughs) And that's how I make most of my decisions in life. (laughs) 
She booked her flights for December, and she wanted to do it alone. No friends. Being alone is a completely different experience than being with a group. I like being with me. And I don't think people do it enough, you know? Not enough Americans or people in the world in general be with themselves. And it was funny because I, you know, I had a few people like when I started to make it known what I was doing, being like, oh, that'd be really cool. I'd like to go with you. And I'm like, eh, well, thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes. Good luck. <laughs> Six months later, Amy packed up her road bike, panniers, a bunch of layers, and boarded a flight to Nepal. She spent a few days in Kathmandu, acclimating and sorting out her Chinese visa, before flying to Lhasa, Tibet. Although Amy wanted to do the trip solo, Tibet's travel regulations required that she work with an agency to support her trip. The agency arranged for her to bus from Lhasa to Shigaste, and then from Shigaste to base camp with a tour group, where they would drop her off with her bike and a local would follow her route in a support car. Amy wanted to bring a tent and camp, but the travel agency told her it would be too cold. Instead, she'd stay with host families and in mountain lodges along the way. After a few nights in Lhasa, she hopped on the bus with 12 other tourists to base camp and strapped her bike on the back. After the zigzaggiest road she'd ever been up in her life, Amy and the bus tour arrived at the Rungbuk Monastery at 16,500 feet. The monastery is also called base camp, although the base camp for climbers is in a slightly different location, about six kilometers away. We arrive at this monastery and it is freaking cold. Like, like, it's cold. <laughs> and no heat at this monastery. We find, we find out that um, there's no monks there because it was too cold for them. They left for the winter. <laughs> and I'm like, great. It's too cold for the monks, but we're going to stay here. Fantastic. <laughs> it's like, awesome. I didn't realize at this point that this was a norm. No heat in, uh, in, any, in anywhere. The group scarfed down some dinner and crawled into their bunks. During the night, the temperature dropped to about negative 20 degrees. Between the cold and the sound of people sucking from oxygen tanks, Amy didn't get a great night's sleep. We woke up the next morning. The sun was not even really coming up yet. It was dark. And so they got up and I got up with them and you know they loaded up the bus. I took my bike off the bus, brought it back into the room we were staying. And they told me, oh, yeah, your support car will be here in a couple hours. And so I said goodbye to all my new friends and stood there in the freezing cold. And uh, I watched the, the bus drive away. And as I'm watching the bus drive away and I'm alone, <laughs> I'm like, I am alone on Everest right now. <laughs> I actually cried a little bit <laughs> because I was like, oh, my grandiose idea just became reality just now. <laughs> I started questioning myself. I was questioning whether I could do it. I was questioning whether this was a good idea. I was like going through my head, you know, like having this battle of what's the difference between pride and perseverance? When am I pushing myself because of pride? And when am I pushing myself in a healthy way and persevering through a challenging situation? And it was literally an argument with myself in my brain. I'm like, I don't know. So what do you do? Well, so I went back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go back to that room and take all of their blankets and put them on top of me. <laughs> That's what I'll do. And I'll decide in a little bit. 
Everest, the Tibetan support car driver, offered Amy some coffee and yak butter tea to warm up. When she got up to use the bathroom outside, it felt warmer. The sun peeked out from behind the mountains, and the temperature swung up in the single digits. Confidence restored, Amy decided to just get on her bike, start riding, and see what happened. She'd be riding from base camp to Shigaste, the same road she'd bust up with the tour group. She hadn't worked out where she was going to eat or spend the night, or even how far she was going to ride each day, but she figured that was just part of the adventure. Everest said he'd trail behind her and be around if she needed. He knew all the locals in the area, so he could recommend good places to stop, rest, and get a bite to eat. Amy loaded up her gear, clipped her helmet, and hit the road. I got on my bike and I'm like, oh, this feels great. You know, first day especially, I just, I was just like taking it all in. This is really cool. Like Everest is just right there. It's like a whitest gray color, you know, from the snow and everything. And I mean, it's pretty predominantly set. It was just a gorgeous blue sky almost every day. And it just like popped at you. And you just feel so tiny. Like you see it and you're like, wow, that's really huge. The road was paved, but desolate. No cars, no people, (laughs) a bird or two every once in a while. I saw those, you know, but even they weren't around that much. I mean, it was quiet, except for my panting. (laughs) Her first day had plenty of elevation gain and loss, but she'd prepared herself for the hills by training in Connecticut in all the big rings. So when she finally clicked down to her small gears, it would feel easy. You know, I just remember like thinking, you're really doing this. Like you can do this and you are. Day one passed by fairly glitch-free, besides a few hiccups in gear. I stopped to take a picture, and I go to try to get out of my clip out of my pedal, and I got one out, and my other one's not coming out, and I'm like, uh-oh, and I'm like, I've done this before, like, clearly I should know how to do it, you know? And I couldn't get it off, and so I, I had to, like, take my shoe off, and it's still on the pedal, and so now... I'm holding this bike that probably had an additional 40 pounds of gear. So I'm trying to hold my bike. I'm taking my shoe off. And now my foot's cold, right? So I put my glove on my foot because I'm like, well, maybe this will help keep it warm. As I try to figure out what is wrong. Fortunately, Everest happened to drive by just then. And he pulled over to give her a hand. They took the pedal off and discovered that one of the screws had fallen out on the bumpy ride. And it's the only thing I didn't bring a spare part for. So she took the whole clip off and rode with just one leg clipped in for the rest of the trip. At the end of the day, Amy found Everest waiting for her on a dirt road that forked off from the Friendship Highway. They walked to the guest house, and Amy settled in for the night. She'd imagined that she'd use her evenings to upload photos and videos from the day onto her hard drive, but that was the last thing she felt like doing. And I'd curl up in a fetal position and not want to move, because the second I'd move, I'd have to, like, warm up again. It was probably the most mentally challenging part, because I never got a reprieve. I never got to relax. I never got to truly recover. How'd you talk yourself through those moments? A lot of it was telling myself, this is only temporary. You know, I'd also like remind myself that you chose this, Amy. (laughs) When she took off from her homestay the following morning, Amy rode uphill for seven hours. 
She felt the best physically she'd felt so far, probably because she sang herself all the way up that hill. I'm getting closer to my home. <laughs> Dory comes to mind a lot, you know, like just keep swimming, swimming. <laughs> With no one else around, Amy would talk to herself, laugh out loud at random thoughts that would pass through her mind, stop to take pictures, and marvel at the exquisite scenery. I found out I really like me. Like, I'm a pretty cool person. And a lot of people are afraid to be confident because people call me egotistical. And it's okay to be confident, and it's okay to be who I am, and it's okay to be proud of who I am. Amy made it about 60 kilometers that day. She stayed again in someone's home, shivered her way through the night, and strapped into the bike again for day three. On one incredibly icy pass, Everest made Amy put her bike in the car to carry her safely to dry road on the other side. Day three was particularly frosty, with temperatures around negative 18 degrees, without wind chill, and it was very windy. Amy stopped every 15 or 20 kilometers to warm up her feet. She even stopped at a restaurant in the middle of the day to drink hot water and rub her feet before she pushed onwards into the icy afternoon. She didn't make it as far that day, with all the frostbite prevention pit stops. Amy felt drained when she wheeled into her home for the night. She ate some food and went to bed. I woke up in the middle of the night nauseous and the bathroom I'd have to go out my room and down the stairs to this like hole in this room and I literally got out of the bed and made it to the trash can in my room. And I just like projectile like bleh. That routine went on for the majority of the night. Amy was supposed to meet Everest at 9.30 to finish the final push back to Shigaste. But she laid in bed for an extra hour, trying to recuperate from her sleepless night. When she got up, she asked Everest how far she had to ride that day. And he's like, 60 kilometers. And I was like, all right, 60 kilometers. I could do this. Amy forced herself to eat half an apple, got on her bike, and started to ride. She didn't feel great, but she pushed on. The terrain began to ease, allowing her to take it slow. After a few hours, she figured she'd gone about 50 kilometers. She pulled over to the side of the road to chat with Everest, and he asked if she wanted to stop for lunch. I said, we're almost there though, right? And he goes, no, you're only halfway. <laughs> and I was like, what? Half of my brain was saying, well... You're almost there. Cool. You could just stop now. And the other half is like, no, you're almost there. You just need to finish. And so I used all of my self-talk. I was like, okay, I got this. I was like, you could do this, Amy. One foot in front of the other. Just keep pedaling. You know, they call the easiest gear in cycling the granny gear. I was like, that makes you seem like a weakling and like a horrible. I'm like, I'm renaming it Himalaya gear. Because then you sound like a badass. So I got myself into Himalaya gear quite often. And I went. She rode for several more hours. Still nothing more than half an apple in her stomach. Everest told her, just one more big hill. Amy pedaled for another hour and a half, telling herself, you gotta be close. You gotta be close. She cranked over the last big hill and then met Everest on the side of the road. I was like, we're almost there, right? And he's like, no, you got like another 30 kilometers. <laughs> and I was like, I just used my best self-talk that I had <laughs> for those last 30 kilometers. 
<laughs> I thought about quitting at that point. At that point, I almost had nothing left. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to finish. And But then I was like, no, no, you could do this. So I put my head down and I wouldn't look at the road above me. And I just rode. A lot of times people say in sports that it's 80% mental, 20% physical. Like there comes a time in sports where it is 100% mental. And this was one of those times where it was 100% mental. I knew that what was preventing me from finishing or not was what I was telling myself. It was my mental endurance. Amy told herself quitting wasn't an option. She put her head down and kept pedaling. The sun went down. Everest stuck right behind her to illuminate the road with his headlights as she pedaled the last few kilometers. And I remember coming over the crest of the hill and looking down and finally seeing a sea of lights from a city. And I was like, ah, Shikaste, there it is. Yes. She sailed down the last hill into the city and squeezed her brakes to a stop. And I was very proud of myself that I didn't quit. I don't think I would have regretted if I made the choice to quit, but I'm glad that I made the choice to keep going because it's pushing your limits, pushing yourself beyond what you think you're capable of. And that's how we achieve things in life. You know, if we all like live in a box and sit in what we're comfortable with, we never grow as humans. We never grow physically, mentally, emotionally, and it helps me with every aspect of my life. I think that there's a lot of women still that think that they can't do it or, you know, like I always tell people, I'm like, I just cycled Everest. I'm not a cyclist. There's people out there that are way better at cycling than me, but that doesn't mean that you can't do something. You don't have to be amazing at something to do it. You just got to go do it. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Jessica Kelly, who won the Kyle Dempster Solo Adventure Award in 2018 for a bikepacking, pack rafting trip through Alaska. And support comes from Kuat Racks. They just released the Ibex, an overlanding truck bed rack that handles substantial loads both on and off the grid because being off the grid is dope. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, the black powder coat is made for all the nature you can throw at it. Available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, the Ibex is engineered for adventure with versatile full and half height configurations. For more details, visit kuat.com. Kuat because you will absolutely love this bedrock and all the dope places you go. So Kyle Dempster was an extraordinary climber, alpinist, and beloved member of the outdoor community. He pioneered many solo adventures, including a two-month bike and climbing trip through Kyrgyzstan, which we documented in the film The Road from Karakol. We talked with Kyle and his mom, Terry, about his solo, The Big Wall, Tadurotin, which is insane, on an episode of The Diaries. I loved working with Kyle. He was creative in his approach, and in our conversations, I felt like he led with honesty and love. In 2016, he and his climbing partner, Scott Adamson, set out to make a first ascent of Pakistan's 23,000-foot Ogre II. 
a storm hit. Kyle and Scott never came home. In his memory, his family, friends, and sponsors established the Kyle Dempster Award in 2018 to foster the love for solo adventuring that Kyle so enjoyed. For our next solo adventure story, we talk with Jessica Kelly, who was one of the three recipients in the first year of the award. I actually prefer to adventure solo. First of all, I'm an introvert, so doing things with other people while I like people, it's definitely draining for me, it, so it takes my energy rather than rejuvenates me. Jessica got into solo backpacking and endurance trail running. The more remote, the better. She ran a 50-mile traverse in the North Cascade Mountains, raced the White Mountains 100, and participated in the Alaska I Did a Sport, which is a 200-mile course racers can choose to bike, ski, or run. As a mom and I have a job and I'm pretty busy, being able to go off on my own and have some quiet and just be able to sort of be in my own head for hours at a time, thats it feels like a luxury. It's a way that I decompress. Year after year, Jessica found herself escaping to the Alaskan wilderness, finding new, more remote areas to explore. So when she learned about Lael Wilcox's grant for women bikepacking through Alaska, she jumped on the opportunity. To apply, Jessica had to create a thousand-mile route through Alaska. I was not the woman that she awarded it to, but after I came up with my route, I was so excited about it that I felt like I have to do this. And then I saw the Kyle Dempster Award, and I was like, okay, maybe this is my ticket. At first, Jessica thought the award was for accomplished climbers and mountaineers. But they weren't necessarily looking for somebody who was an amazing mountaineer. They really just wanted somebody who was excited to go out and explore new places and adventure on their own. Jessica applied and, to her amazement, was one of the three people to win the award. Jessica would start her bikepacking, packrafting adventure in Anchorage, bike to her put-in on the Yukon River, paddle for four to five days, and then rotate between biking and rafting all the way back to Anchorage through Fairbanks and part of Denali National Park. The whole route would take her about three weeks and would cover 1,350 miles. She reached out to outdoor companies to find all the gear she needed for her trip. Just being associated with Kyle in some way opened doors for me, and that was really touching, and it definitely made me feel like I was representing him in some way. I felt like it was really important to live up to the expectations of his friends and family and to his spirit. Jessica mailed her raft ahead of herself to Eagle, a small town on the Yukon where she would pick it up once she finished the first leg of biking. Once she packed her last bag, her husband, Tom, and eight-year-old daughter, Rowan, drove her to the airport. When I was in my 20s, I lived in my truck and I was a river guide and I then made a choice to get married and have a kid and buy a house and a mortgage and all the adulting things. And um, I think I was worried that the Alaska trip was going to show me that I had made the wrong choice. But as soon as it started, I missed them. When she arrived in Anchorage, she didn't dilly-dally. I confess that part of the reason I was excited to get going is because the sooner I started, the sooner I would see my family again. That was a bit of a draw. And I'm almost disappointed in myself to hear myself say that um, because it sounds like I didn't appreciate the adventure for what it was. And I did. I definitely did. But I would be lying if I didn't say that getting back to my family was always at the forefront of my mind.
As Jessica pedaled out of Anchorage, swarms of RVs and cars whizzed by her on the highway. But as she got further away from the city, the cars dwindled, and soon she was on her own. The mountains outside of Anchorage are just stunning. There was excitement and anticipation about the adventure that was ahead of me. Even while missing my family, I was still drinking it all in and just psyched to be there, psyched to be riding my bike all day and in Alaska and enjoying it. She had about 600 miles to pedal between Anchorage and Eagle, where she would put in on the Yukon. The paved road would turn to gravel near the end. She sailed through those miles in six days. One day she did 140 miles in a single push, thanks to a nice tailwind and a positive attitude. I've learned that I can generally handle things on my own. If push comes to shove, I am able to take care of myself, and I don't need anybody else to do it. I know that if you drop me in the middle of the woods with the 10 essentials, I can generally take care of myself, and that is a really awesome feeling. But just in case, Jessica carried a satellite messenger so that her husband could track her progress and make sure she was moving along as planned. She also used it to text her family at night. And from her tent, she would call home on her cell phone if she had reception. When she made it to the town of Eagle along the Yukon River, she pumped up her raft and lashed her bike to the bow. She stuffed all of her gear inside the tubes of the raft and kept a little pack on deck for what she'd need during the day. She planned to be on the river for four to five days, but the bugs encouraged her to make faster progress. Either I could make it an eight-hour day on the river and then set up camp and sit there with bugs, <laughs> or I could make it a 12-hour day on the river and sit in my boat without bugs, and then as soon as I get off the river, just go to sleep. And I chose the latter. <laughs> the terrain along the Yukon mellowed from the dramatic peaks outside Anchorage to smooth, rolling hills. The river itself is huge, stretching almost two miles wide in some places. In the summer, the river runs thick with silt, like chocolate milk. Her second morning on the river, Jessica rounded a bend to find a huge bull moose wading into the middle of the river, directly into her path. She tried honking her marine air horn, but he didn't so much as glance her way. And I finally just yelled at him, like, go away, moose, this is a bad idea. And then, once he heard my voice, he turned around and sort of trotted back out of the river. It just reminded me how small I was on such a big river and how powerless I was and how big the wilderness is out there, which is why I went on that trip. But also, you know, it's scary when you're in the moment. It's definitely, you come face to face with it and it's intense. She lucked out with weather, a couple days of drizzle on the river, but nothing miserable. Mostly she had sunny, clear skies and 20 hours of daylight. She saw a couple other groups on the river in passing. But other than that, she was alone. The river wasn't technical. If she wanted, she could just sit and float and watch the scenery go by. This was the time when I was missing my family the most. I was geographically as far away from them as I was going to get on this trip. And I just was really on my own with nothing to distract me. It was just me sitting in this boat, thinking my thoughts all day long. I definitely spent a lot of time thinking about how much I missed them and what I might be missing out on and all of those things. And I struggled with that because 
I felt like I had been awarded the Kyle Dempster Solo Adventure Award. And yet here I am in Alaska on my solo adventure and I'm homesick as hell. (laughs) And it was like, I just, I felt almost fraudulent. Like I wasn't living up to what was expected of me given the nature of the award. And I felt like I wasn't really embodying Kyle's spirit because There I was in Alaska, yet I was like pining for my husband and eight-year-old daughter. It didn't feel very like hardcore, (laughs) you know? It didn't feel very adventurous. Her days flowed smoothly down the river. Jessica knew as long as she was paddling downstream, she was headed in the right direction. So she didn't worry too much about navigating. But on her last day, she did have to pay attention to make her take out into the town of Circle. The river splits around an island, and if she didn't go left around it, she'd be in trouble. The next takeout wasn't for another 70 miles. As she approached the island, her husband texted her on the satellite device. They exchanged a few messages back and forth, And then her husband stopped responding. It's funny because I'm the one in Alaska, like paddling the Yukon. But I was sort of freaked out because I didn't know what had happened to him. And I'm out of cell coverage. So it's not like I can just call him and be like, hey, why aren't you responding to my text? Focused on her messenger, Jessica forgot about the left around the island. I had to paddle straight for shore, even though the river was pushing me downstream. And it was looking a little sketchy for a couple minutes there. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. She did make it, barely. A bit shaken, Jessica quickly dissembled her raft and hopped back on her bike. Gravel gummed up on her tires as she pedaled away from Circle. It had just rained, and the road was slimy. She turned onto the highway, out of Circle, toward Fairbanks. And the bugs along that stretch were horrendous, worse than on the river, just awful. She did her best to keep cool, not let the bugs get to her. She put her head down and kept rolling. When I got to Fairbanks, though, I discovered that I had had some reaction to the bug bites and I took off my bike shorts like I was staying at a friend's house and I took off my bike shorts to change into other clothes and my legs were just covered in bruises, which normally I wouldn't worry about, but I have a clotting disorder. And so I had some concern about whether or not the bruises were related to the clotting disorder. Jessica had her blood drawn in Fairbanks and sent the results back to her hematologist in Seattle. Her hematologist said she'd probably be fine, but Jessica wasn't totally reassured. So ultimately, I decided to modify my trip slightly. I had planned to float some other rivers, and I decided I would just ride my bike back to Anchorage and skip the other two rivers because being on the river is more remote and it would be harder if I needed to be evacuated. It would be harder to get me off a river than off of a road. It's funny, I don't know if I've admitted this to anybody before other than like my husband and maybe my parents when I was debating the situation. But one thing that I really struggled with is at that point I was getting close to Anchorage. I was probably four or five days if I had ridden my bike. If I had floated the rivers, it would have been more like six or seven. So by skipping the rivers, not only was it safer, but it also got me home to my family faster. And I really agonized with whether or not I was making that decision to modify my trip because I wanted to see my family sooner or because it was actually a safety decision. I didn't want to be giving myself an easy way out of this trip. And ultimately, I decided it was a safety concern. I spent some time on the phone with my husband and my hematologist, and they both made it clear that at the very least, I should plan to ride and not float. And that 
if anything, it would be more like time to come home. And I wasn't going to go home. Knowing she wouldn't finish her trip exactly as she intended bothered Jessica. In some ways, she felt like she was letting down Kyle and his award. She plugged in her headphones and tried to pedal through those feelings. I was listening to uh, Dirtbag Diaries podcast while I was riding, and it was the episode where Kyle and his mom were being interviewed. And so it was a lot about what it was like to have family members who go off and do these things. And it really touched on what his relationship with his mom is like and how important it was to him. And I think listening to that podcast and listening to Kyle talk and reminding myself what he was about by listening to that interview also reassured me that the decision that I had made to bike the miles instead of float the miles was the right decision. And that part of the goal for my trip and for every trip is to start and end at home, if at all possible. She knew her husband and daughter were waiting for her in Anchorage. So Jessica felt eager to speed through those last miles. I wish I could say that I spent some time, well, you know, actually I did spend some time sort of enjoying my last few hours of solitude. I did. I actually remember pulling over and thinking about it because it had been such an intense trip and I didn't want it to just sort of fly by. I wanted to take a minute to process everything, what it had been about for me. But then the rest of the day was like, yay, I'm going to see my husband. I'm going to see my kiddo. (laughs) Lots of anticipation and excitement. In a few hours, she pulled into Anchorage, swung her legs off her bike, and wrapped her husband and daughter in a giant hug. I think that my trip ended up embodying Kyle's spirit because it became so clear to me during the trip just how important my family was to me and just how important my community and connections were. I think that's probably why anybody who has deep personal connections goes off on some adventure by themselves and removes themselves from all those connections. I think one of the reasons is because it shows you what you have and what you're missing, and it really highlights it. I would like to think that Kyle would have gotten a kick out of the trip that I did, partly because the route was interesting and I paddled the Yukon by myself, but also because I went into the trip thinking that I was going to have this really independent experience. But what the trip ended up showing me was how grateful I was for my family and the people in my life and how important they were to me. Thank you to Amy and Jessica for sharing their stories. If you want to see some of the photos from their adventures, follow us on Instagram, dirtbag underscore diaries. Jacob Bain and Nice Kodos composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists in this episode at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or the artists themselves. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and Becca Cahal. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.